spaces that we design has cues in terms of how we as a society function. Hello, and welcome to Tete a Tete, the Rice Architecture podcast series. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and today we have Jeanette Kuo, a co-founding partner of Zurich-based firm Karma Kuo Architects. In addition to her practice, Jeanette is also an assistant professor in practice of architecture at Harvard Graduate School of Design. Along with completed works, including the International Sports Sciences Institute in Lausanne and the Wyden Secondary School, Karma Kuo is currently designing Kennedy Hall, in addition to Rice School of Architecture. We are excited to talk today about how the firm tackles designing functional educational spaces with unexpected moments of additional flexibility, among other things. Let's dive in. Jeanette, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. After working in New York and you and your partner both started teaching careers, you founded the firm Karamuk Quo with your partner Unal Karamuk in 2010. What drove you to start your own practice at that moment? Well, I think it was a number of things that coincided to produce probably the right environment or the right timing. One of the things is that we had both been working for some time already at that time. And uh, as you were saying, I had been teaching and was at the brink of really kind of potentially going into a, an academic career here in the U.S. And before I kind of would sign on to that, I sort of took a step back and was evaluating a little bit what I would really want out of the career that we would be crafting as architects. And I think that for us, it was always really important, the kind of balance between architecture as a kind of built practice, a material practice, and that as a kind of intellectual pursuit. And so at that time, I was going into you know, academia without having built something under my own name. And for me, that was actually one of the things that I thought would be important, you know, to actually take a step back, focus on the practice before coming back into teaching, having more the kind of practical experience and, and more, I would say, established with my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was one of the, I would say, core sort of considerations when we went into it. Uh, and the other one was just pure luck. I mean, we were at that time sort of trying out different competitions and things like that, doing a lot of work in uh, Swiss competitions. And uh, in 2010, we won basically our first project. And with that, started our practice. Yeah, and I guess what's nice about the Swiss competition system, for some of our listeners who might not know, is that it's a lot more kind of an even playing field. You guys didn't have to have any built work or a lot of practical experience to enter the competition and then win. So, I mean, I think that's the great thing, you know, that's happening I would say in a lot of European countries, but in particular in Switzerland, is that there is an environment that promotes young practices, that allows for young practices to be competing together with more established practices and to actually have a chance. So for example, these competitions that we were doing, some of them were open competitions, but others were you know, through a kind of selection process, but the selection process is not as cumbersome in some ways than you know, what you would find here in the RFPs and RFQs. For example, there are sometimes slots reserved, like one or two slots for young architects that would only need to submit a portfolio of design work that doesn't really have to be built, but that, you know, they would be kind of admitted under the kind of young architect category. That was, in fact, how we won our first competition was through that kind of submission process. 
So given that your work consistently balances both aesthetics and pragmatism with respect to function, were there specific design concerns that you were looking to address with the founding of your firm? Maybe the way also, you know, in terms of the, the words you were using in that question somehow hits at the core of our own frustrations in a way with some of the things that were going on at the time that we started our practice. And part of that has to do with the polarization of the idea of aesthetics and function, Mm -hmm. and to treat function as a kind of pragmatism. And in fact, if we look at a lot of architects that we were admiring, or still are admiring, a lot of times it's really difficult to distinguish between the two. In fact, I'm referring to people like Pierluigi Nervi, but um, also, you know, I would say people like Mies, even all the way until people like, you know, uh, Gaudi, you could argue, um, a lot of what they were doing that were considered sort of aesthetics were actually in some ways functionally driven, uh, very much about an idea of working with structures, an idea of exposing, let's say, the kind of inner workings of that structure as a kind of aesthetic pursuit. And so this kind of combination of those two worlds for us was very important. And I think what we tried to bring to the equation a little bit is how that actually plays out then in the inside of a building. And that means really focusing and refocusing the question not so much as architecture is pure form and form from the outside, uh, perceived as an object, but rather how is it as a lived space? How is it as a space that you occupy where daily life unfolds, but also that allows for you to, in a way, experience things differently? And given what you kind of just said about how you might think about some of these architectural projects in the design process, like what is the firm's general approach then? You know, we work a lot in physical models in many different scales, you know, from very sort of ad hoc foam models all the way to, you know, large spatial models where we investigate these things much more in detail. The process, in a way, is very often nonlinear. It's not a problem solving process necessarily, although we do try to repose the question. So, no- normally when we receive the brief, it's really about, well, what is at the crux of this project? What is the question that we need to ask? that would generate the kind of conceptual direction for this. After that, then it becomes really about a kind of search for the best possible response. And sometimes it's a balance, I would say, of intuition and really working out in quite rigorous ways what some of these more, I would say, realistic concerns might be. What that means is that we take on a lot of the kind of constraints from the get-go, things that have to do with you know structures or with infrastructural situations that are important for a building, all the inner workings that sometimes people don't deal with until afterwards that have the potential to bite back at you um, if you don't actually treat it as part of the concept, um, we actually take on on the very beginning. So it's not just about the kind of program that's given, but trying to understand the relationships and the hierarchies and the potentials, let's say, in terms of how to perceive these different types of activities and requirements inside the building. Um, And you touched on something I wanted to talk a little bit more about. So your firm does do a lot of work with models, and I think one of the challenges throughout the design process is really selecting representation 
that allows you to communicate your ideas effectively. And I guess I'm just wondering, how does working in such a tactile manner help you kind of work through the design process? Or what do you think you get out of it that makes you use that type of representation so much? Well, you know, I think that part of it has to do also with the fluidity and the the translation between how we work in the office and how we present to other people. And I think there was always a kind of dichotomy in terms of how we used to talk about it before, you know, in other practices that I worked with as well, you know, you would do something in the office, your own internal process, but that can't be shared with others because you have to kind of repackage it into another representational mode that then is kind of given over to whether it's the clients or the public or somebody else. And working in models cuts that out, you know, it cuts out the kind of middleman, the translation, it basically allows us to really communicate on a very uh, sort of fundamental level um, and, and quite clearly to uh, everybody that's on the table. And, and that has to do with our own internal communication process in terms of how we work with people in our office, but also in terms of how we discuss work then with clients and with other people in the public. I think what's great with the model is that it allows us to see into things without preconceptions. You know, we take it at, at face value. We don't have to necessarily be there to explain it. We don't have to repackage it in any other way. I think everyone can kind of engage with it on their own terms and at the same time have a productive discussion that allows you to integrate many different points of views. Mm-hmm. So you work in like the Swiss context and the European context and then also you teach in America and have projects now in the U.S., So we were kind of wondering, working in both imperial and metric units, what kind of challenges there are in that? The imperial is something I don't think I will ever get used to. I I did that, of course, as a student as well. And um, uh, it is, I would say, one of the biggest challenges Mm -hmm. of working in the U.S. again. Um, Do you think that has any implications for scale or proportion in your projects like you kind of think about larger units of measurement in a different way just because like there's a foot but like a meter is a different no well I, I wouldn't say that it's, it has any sort of real design implications I think that the only thing is that we we have to do sort of backwards calculations and mm-hmm. you know sort of translate back and forth because we're still intuitively thinking in meters much more The great thing about the metric, not to say that there hasn't been great stuff done with the (laughs) the imperial system, um, but the great thing about the metric is that you don't have to do any sort of mental translation to move from uh, meters to centimeters to millimeters. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our design process is very fluid between those systems because the moment we start talking about a detail, like how a window comes together, we're talking in millimeters. And then, then, you know, we're talking about a lot of times details of a specific part of a building that might be in centimeters because we want to know actually more precisely how those rooms measure out. But then the moment we start talking about the entire building and about more Mm -hmm. the kind of urban positioning of it and things like that, then of course we're talking about meters. And that fluidity, I think, is the beauty of the metric system. It allows us to kind of move between those types of scales much more easily. So earlier this semester, you were here at Rice and you gave a lecture titled Possible Futures. And you spoke about architecture moving away from this idea of program as the primary driver of form. You seem to suggest that program should be considered as a more transient 
phenomenon, an occupant rather than an originator of built space. Uh, would you say this is an accurate understanding of your position? I would maybe put it slightly differently in the sense mm -hmm. that um, I think that what we are interested in is an architecture that can stand beyond just the functional assignment to it. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that we've noticed over the years is that occupancy changes, the way people work changes. Mm -hmm. You know, even if we design a school, the kind of pedagogical values change over time and the needs that respond to that also change over the time. In that sense, important to think about the building and the spaces as being something that can kind of withstand all of that, but at the same time provide the opportunities and the potentials that allows for this type of change. And so one of the key questions that we were asking in some ways is, how can we move beyond the pure one-to-one -one response of function to design? Mm -hmm. How can we create spaces that in and of themselves are significant in such a way, both in terms of the spatial experience, but also in terms of the ways in which it sets up relationships uh, between people that occupy that space, that you would actually want to rethink it and reuse it over time. Yeah, well, I, I feel like I noticed that in the Institute at Lausanne. I read an article where it was described as almost maybe not arbitrary, but very seemingly like positioned groups of furniture in the spaces. And that kind of has nothing to do with its function as it, an institute for sports sciences, but the kind of terracing and the groupings of furniture allow all these different opportunities for people to come together that are just fully outside of the function of that? Well, you know, furniture is temporal, right? That's, that's what comes mm -hmm. after the architecture is done. And it's the thing that allows people to kind of use it and live it, but it's also brought by the people. So we only have a certain amount of control sometimes in in that. But what we can control in some ways is how the building allows for those different types of positioning. You know, I think that what we are trying to do is to provide for environments that very often give more back to the people than they had actually asked for. Mm -hmm. You know, so to, to in fact optimize or even enhance the kind of potentials of the space. So previously they might have asked for one space, mm -hmm. but because of the variety of conditions that we've provided in the building, and I'm referring now also back to the the project you mentioned in Lausanne, where we have this kind of internal atrium with uh, terraces that kind of you know face onto each other, and a, a very kind of three-dimensional sort of sculptural form in the center. It in the end produces a lot of different scales of spaces that allows people to find their own way of inhabiting it. In certain cases, it could be quite monumental. <laughs> it could be a very grand, you know, two, three story high space, but in other moments it's actually a very small niche and quite intimate and also cozy. And mm -hmm. and so the types of furnishings in some ways that we introduced, but also that the clients in some ways ended up bringing in themselves as well, was responding in some ways to the kind of variety of spaces that was there. Um, and do you see these moments of having the more monumental down to like the smaller, the niche-like space, do you see these happening in a lot of your other projects? Maybe the larger question is, how do we respond to a brief that very often is about a set of functions that are predetermined, mm -hmm. that have a, a kind of number attached to it? In the case of Lausanne, for example, the 
brief, had just one sentence asking for a space that would allow for the four different occupants uh, or occupant groups in the building to find synergy and moments of encounter. So that, that was the only thing that was in reference mm -hmm. to this kind of atrium space. This was an open competition with many other entries and most of the other entries proposed that type of space differently. You know, so some, some people had lounges that were sprinkled throughout the building, other people did uh, one large space or something like that. We proposed this atrium as a way of providing a centralized spatial core but also an identity for the building that allows each of those users who has their own offices on each level to essentially face onto and be in always constant close contact with this kind of shared space. So what resulted, I mean, the design of this kind of sculptural interior in some ways, you know, has a lot to do also with responding to some of the functional needs on each floor, but it produces out of this kind of, let's say, the negative form of those spaces, a variety of what we call a kind of interior landscape. I would say that in other projects, we might have responded to it differently. We did also a secondary school in Biden, uh, where we essentially built two floors of classrooms on top of a gym, which essentially produced a huge span that we had to kind of uh, bridge across and, and a, a large floor plate essentially on the upper floors where there were classrooms. And so with that, we actually responded to this kind of idea of a shared communal space by introducing a large hall, you could argue, uh, in the center of those plates. And in some ways, maybe at the heart of a lot of the projects that we are doing, it has to do with how do we build spaces that respond to collectivity, that respond to how people come together and how people share spaces. And so in both of these projects, it was about providing for that space that sometimes is not very well described in a brief, sometimes not even asked for. Like in the case of Biden, it was not asked for. In typical school situations, you would find instead of this kind of hall, you would find actually a corridor, right, that would lead to the different classrooms. And in our case, we essentially reintroduced a space that was a collective space that people could hang out in, that they could study in, in between classes, and that actually had a kind of quality that you would want to actually stay there for a longer period. So we had introduced these courtyards you know, with outdoor spaces as well into the kind of center of these kind of classroom levels. And that changed quite a bit the equation in terms of the relationships between the students to each other, mm -hmm. how they use their spaces, and also in terms of the time that you spend uh, within the school and the institution. You talked about this a little bit earlier, um, how when you had started teaching a little bit and then you were facing kind of a career in academia a little bit and you wanted to take a step back and then start the firm and maybe then return to teaching with a little bit more practical experience. And a lot of other firms or kind of architects working in the field also practice in pedagogy as well. Do you see that work, your work in schools kind of going hand in hand with practice or how do you see that relationship working Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's two halves of the same equation. Mm -hmm. I think that what we do in teaching feeds into uh, also what we do in work and vice versa. A lot of times, obviously, when we teach, we're confronted with questions that we might have already taken for granted because we face it on a daily level. But it's always very refreshing to be able to take that step back and to say, you know, maybe we've been looking at this 
too closely the same way. And maybe there's a different way of uh, thinking about it again and maybe re-questioning it on an even more basic level uh, that changes potentially the equation all over. I do think that it is important in some ways that we don't keep going down uh, one path of you know concentrating on, on practice without having that kind of step back in that moment of reflection. At the same time, I think that sometimes in academia we tend to get very theoretical to the point where maybe it loses a bit of relevance in terms of how it could be effective in the real world. And I think that dialogue is actually important and to be able to find ways of reintroducing innovation back into practice, I think is important. And so I think that that constant back and forth for us, both in terms of our own work, but also in terms of how we view the kind of um, contributions Mm -hmm. to the dialogues, I think is essential. One of the things that I think we noticed about your firm in particular was that you work in architectural education, but then you've also done a lot of work on educational buildings, not necessarily architectural education buildings. How do you think working on educational buildings has informed your practice and maybe if that's also informed any of your like teaching? It, it kind of happened by chance, I guess, that a series of our buildings were related to the kind of educational typology. You know, we started with the kindergarten, then we did the secondary school, and then we did the, mm-hmm. the uh, university building in Lausanne, uh, and now, of course, here at Rice. Um, so I think that the series of educational projects has allowed us actually to confront maybe more precisely one of the things that you know I was just mentioning earlier, which has to do with the idea of collectivity and you know a kind of collective urban life. And I think that happens at its most essential probably in education, how we relate to other people and what that means in terms of the spaces that we inhabit. Mm-hmm. I strongly believe that the spaces that we design has cues in terms of how we as a society function. So again, if I go back to this project at the University of Lausanne, um, that's a project that has four different user groups that were kind of, in some ways, forced into one building. And of course, they have research similarities and things that they do in common, um, but at the same time, they're four separate institutions and you know each one having also quite specific needs in a way. But to provide a space that allows for them to interact, even if it's on a very casual level, um, let's say um, unprogrammed or informal kind Mm of uh, way, means that they have to get to know each other better (laughs) and that they have to deal with each other on equal terms. And also that they are potentially, even when they're not uh, interacting with each other, understanding that they're all part of a larger institution. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, in fact, quite important in terms of the message that we want to convey to people that are going to be part of a society later on as well, right? That not just in university buildings, but also in the kindergarten, for example, Mm -hmm. we had a very similar type of space that we introduced, which was about a kind of collective interior. You know, what do you do in inclement weather when you can't go out to the playground outside? You turn inside uh, and you provide for spaces that allows for kids to essentially run around and actually do things, but to, to realize that they are part of a larger group. And so I think that a lot of these ideas have, of course, informed our work and we continue to sort of question and expand on that but it also informs in a way the things that we feel are important to convey to others and 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 therefore to convey in our teaching as well. 
Yeah, I think that's really a great way to put it. One of our previous guests on the podcast, Alan Maskin, who works at Olsen Kundig, one of the things he said a lot was, what can we do together that we cannot do apart? And I think at least being in school, really teaching people from just being kindergartners to even being, you know, in a more university level setting that they all need to like operate together on some level, I think is a very important thing to instill in people and having those kind of opportunities for collectivity is very, very important. As someone who has taught in both Europe and the US, what differences do you see in the systems of architectural education? It's easy to fall into stereotypes, obviously, mm -hmm. um, because there are great differences from the administrative all the way to the way in which values are conveyed or taught mm -hmm. or what, what is, let's say, or prioritized in the education. Probably what you're looking for in your question, I sense, is has to do mainly with how it's perceived on the student end, perhaps, and, and what that means in terms of the work that's being produced. And mm -hmm. I would say that for sure in Europe there is a much more grounded approach to the question of architecture, which translates directly also into academia. I think that you could see it in some ways as approaching the same equation from opposite ends. Mm -hmm. You know, So from the US you start maybe more on a cerebral level. There's a push for a kind of conceptual understanding of a project, a kind of intellectual reasoning behind that before the production of form and the production of space. And, and that's my own critique of it is sometimes we don't even arrive yet at that space. The space comes as a kind of result, which is not to say that there isn't a lot of innovation that happens in that intellectual pursuit. And I think there's a lot of exciting things happening that has to do with re-questioning things that is great within the kind of critical pedagogies mm -hmm. in the American context. And I think that in the European sense is that we try to approach it more from the other end, which has to do with understanding that the practice of architecture is in the end about built form or built materials, and therefore to ground it on that level, while still at the same time re-questioning what that profession or that discipline has done over the years. So the kind of conceptual rethinking of things is to some degree more anchored within a kind of reality of, of practice, even though sometimes there are still very radical projects that are being proposed. To some degree, I would say that the culture of it is is quite similar. There's reviews, there's desk credits, there's a lot of you know lectures and symposia and things like that, that are events that are happening in parallel. So the types of activities, you could argue, that take place within the building, whether it's in Europe or here in the US, are very, very similar. What is different is just the, the philosophy that anchors it. Those questions were leading us in the direction of um, your firm will be designing uh, Rice Architecture's new Kennedy Hall, and this will be your firm's first built project in the U.S. Some of the things we were wondering, first off, is what do you see as the biggest challenges and opportunities with this project, given it's kind of a new and unfamiliar context, since you're most familiar with uh, Switzerland? I think one of the things that is maybe more of a challenge has to do with understanding the culture of construction here mm -hmm. and the systems and techniques potentially that uh, people are more used to dealing with here in a way, which is not to say obviously that we cannot change that or influence that to a certain degree, but mm -hmm. I think that it's important to understand how people build here. The other thing is obviously has to do with very much the 
the climate and and how we respond to that. I think that mm-hmm. the extreme conditions yeah, that we face <laughs> here in Houston is very very different, uh, and how we would respond to that in a ecologically conscious way, I think is much greater challenge than even the climates that we have to face in Europe. In in Switzerland, obviously there's the four seasons, but to a certain degree, I think that the humidity or the lack of humidity and the lack of, you know, these kind of torrential Mm -hmm. uh, rains and flood conditions do present a a very different type of challenge. So I think those types of issues, you know, at the core of it is obviously important. I think the last one has to do with also a kind of cultural understanding and what people value and prioritize. Mm-hmm. I think that the conversations probably we would have on building in Europe are very, very different uh, than the conversations that we have you know, also with clients here in, in the U.S. And I think that's one of the things that we will have to learn to navigate. Yeah, and I think one of the other challenges maybe at least with designing specifically in rice or within the rice context is that it's a very built up campus already so there is a lot of things materially or even like formally that might present themselves as influences or present themselves as something that you have to learn how to kind of navigate and maybe uh, interpret in your own way um, to create a building that might be fitting with the rest of the campus but not necessarily just mimicking what's already existing. Yeah, although I think that, you know, that's in fact one of our core interests, you know, in a lot of the projects that we've done Mm -hmm. face um, similar types of conditions. And um, that's one of the things that we found also very interesting about the RISE campus is that there is this kind of strong historical presence and also very strong landscape presence and how to surf that fine line Mm -hmm. of, you know, introducing something new into this equation while at the same time respecting to a certain degree the existing fabric that's already there. You've spent a lot of time at Rice um, just as part of the pre-design process over the past few months, um, and we already got into this a little bit, but is there anything else that particularly excites the firm about the project or that really drew you to want to be a part of this project? It's obviously for us very, very interesting to be involved in a project that has to do with architectural education because it's the crux of, you know, where all of these conversations begin Mm -hmm. and where we essentially think of the next generations. And so um, I think that in itself was already for us super exciting. And then when we first came and visited and got to know the Rice campus, we really fell in love with the school mm-hmm. and the community that's here, but also um, the campus itself as, a, as this kind of historic island in the middle of Houston. So, you know, for us, this is a very exciting project for our firm. And also just in terms of the conversations that we could be having in terms of moving it forward uh, for us is something that we definitely look forward to. Um, And so zooming a little bit out from just rice, I don't know exactly, I know you have like a very packed schedule when you're here, but we were wondering what projects have you had a chance to visit in Houston? Was anything particularly striking to you or kind of things you hadn't had a chance to see before? I visited the Manil because, you know, the last several times I was always here on Mondays and Tuesdays when it's always closed. Mm -hmm. And so I really took you know, time and kind of went through the different galleries and things like that, including, you know, also the, the newly completed um, Drawing Institute. 
And so that was actually quite fantastic. So what's amazing is that this is this culturally rich institution, like, you know, really full of fantastic mm-hmm. artworks that is free to the public. Yeah. Um, that's such an amazing amenity to have in the middle of this big city. And mm-hmm. then for Rice to be in such close proximity to it, I think that that's a fantastic gift in, in a way to the city. And yeah, and of course, all the different buildings. I mean, I think, you know, from the original sort of Menil mm-hmm. uh, building by, by Benzo Piano, you know, all the way to the, the latest one from Johnson Mark Lee, I think they were all very beautifully designed buildings with, mm-hmm. you know, a kind of corresponding collection that is quite incredible to have at your hands. Given just that example, the rich campus that exists for the Menil and how it inserts itself into this bungalow residential context, how do you think experiencing some of these design solutions for a city like Houston could inform your own design process? What I actually was quite fascinated by at the Menil, and I'm talking about the original Renzo Piano building, is the kind of understated nature of it. It actually has two scales because from a certain vantage point, you see it as a kind of museum. It's pretty big. It's, of course, towering above everything else that's around it. At the same time, when you start to approach it, you realize, you know, this is like wood cladding. It looks like, the, you know, the typical bungalows that are next yeah. to it. And it takes on a scale which is very different and also quite, as I was saying, quite understated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not trying to overpower its context. It's, in fact, blending in quite well, even despite its size. And that kind of balance, I think, is quite fascinating for that project, maybe in comparison to some other buildings that I know from him. And I think that it's definitely one of the highlights, I would say. And of course, you know, some of these things are going to be similar challenges that we would face, you know, building here in the Vice campus. That'll be a very interesting example to draw on. And of course, there's tons of other things that Houston has to offer. So hopefully you'll get a chance to see a few more of those. Yes. You know, one thing that I really would love to visit and I'm waiting until the next time that I have a few more hours uh, during my stay, I would love to go to NASA. Oh yeah, so much fun. That'll be great. Well, thanks for being on the podcast today, Jeanette. Thank you for having me. For more information on Karamuk Kuo's work, visit their website at karamukkuo.com. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe to our page on your favorite platform to keep up with new releases. Our show is made possible by the work of Siobhan Finley, Jessica LaBarbera, Takuzwa Tafuma, Carrie Lee, and Shauna Forney. I'm your host, Lindsay Chambers, and this has been Tete a Tete.